This morning we're going to kind of continue on a different path since Pastor Robert's not here, but we're still really in this series about here on earth as it is in heaven. And this morning we're going to look at a passage that you're probably familiar with, but we're going to unpack it in probably ways that you've never seen before. What I want you to do this morning as we're discussing this is paint a mental image of what you hear and what you read. I love pictures, I love stories because they give a vivid illustration that helps me understand at a deeper level what's going on. But before we get to that, you know, Jesus said the highest expression of love that any person can have for another is to lay down their life for someone. Question for you this morning, and don't answer it out loud, and just, I want you to think very carefully. Is there someone that you can think of that you would be willing to die for? Someone you'd be willing to sacrifice your life for. Just think for a moment. In my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, of course there is, because that's the right answer. I might be thinking of a family member. I really hope and feel I would give my life for my wife, for my children, grandchild. But what about a friend? Or let's go even a step deeper. Would you be willing to die for a stranger? No, wait a minute. One more step. Would you be willing to die for an enemy? Somebody who didn't like you. Somebody who spoke evil about you. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would do that. I I hope that I would do it for those that I love deeply and intimately, but I'm not so sure about others. But here's the irony of this. Jesus did. Because of God's amazing love, God loves us so much that he did something so remarkable, he sent his son Jesus And Jesus didn't just say, oh, yes, I would die for those I love as well as those I I heard, those who are my enemies. He demonstrated it. In fact, the Bible says that Christ loved us so much that while we are yet sinners, he died for us. You know what the word sinners there means? Enemies. Let me give you a vivid illustration. When we were born, the Bible says we were all born into sin. If you have children, did you have to teach them to sin? It comes pretty easy and comes naturally and it comes at a very young age. We're born with a propensity to sin. But yet God loved us that he was willing to take us as sinners, as enemies, as separated from him and to do something to reconcile us to himself. You see, we were all born and captured by Satan. And in order to break out of that, we have to claim the victory that we have in Christ through his redemption, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to read the incredible prophecy of Isaiah Isaiah wrote about the intense suffering that, that this, he calls God's servant. God's servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. But he doesn't name him here because Isaiah doesn't know who this is at this point in time. But he's going to look at his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his subsequent glorification. All this he would do for you and for me. Now, I know you've heard this before. But I want you to hear it differently today as I did as I was putting this together. How fascinating is it, listen to this, that Isaiah wrote his prophecy about 700 years before Christ's advent, before Christ was alive, death, buried, and resurrection, all that, 700 years before that. But skeptics, and they had a good argument, would say that they don't believe because Isaiah's prophecy was too accurate, it was too descriptive, it was too specific, it, it had to be coincidence, it couldn't be anything but perpetrated after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So they believe, there's a lot of skeptics who believe that Isaiah wrote after Christ lived and died. 
And they had credibility to their argument because how else could you prove what exactly did Isaiah write until God is so good, isn't he? God gives us evidence after evidence after evidence that what he says is true, and he proves it, and he demonstrates it. The, the, uh, the theory of these skeptics was discredited clearly and profoundly when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1947. When they found the scrolls of Isaiah, they took the scrolls of Isaiah, and they took parts of those, and they did what's called carbon-14 dating. They tried to figure out exactly how old they were, and they did about 14 tests, to my understanding. And as they tested the fragments of these Dead Sea Scrolls, the latest one was 100, dated at 100 B.C., the general consensus is around 260 to 310 B.C. So in other words, regardless of how you spin it, Isaiah wrote hundreds of years before Christ. So his prophecy is remarkable because of the detail, which we'll see in just a moment. By the way, prior to that, the latest copies we had of Isaiah were 800 and 900 A.D. It's a long difference, about 1,000 years difference. So the specific passage we're going to look at this morning comes from Isaiah 52, verse 13, and we'll get into chapter 53. It's called a servant song, of which there's four. And in this this particular song, there are five stanzas. Each one reveals a significant truth about God's servant, his chosen servant, who we will know as Jesus, the Messiah, all because he went through this for you and me. Would you stand to honor the reading of God's word from Isaiah chapter 52? Verse 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Heavenly Father, this is just an amazing passage of Scripture. Help us to know it, to understand it, to to let it just bleed into our hearts and lives that we might live it out before others and share with them this wonderful story of your amazing love and redemption. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, you may be seated. The first stanza really, is, in a sense, is an introduction in verses 13 through 15. It says that God's servant would act wisely. Now, to act wisely just simply means that his servant would be obedient to do what God has asked him to do. He would carry out God's will. And in the process, Isaiah said he would be high and lifted up. Now, when I hear high and lifted up, I think of the cross of Jesus Christ because in the New Testament it says when he is high and lifted up, all men will be drawn to him. But Isaiah's not looking at the cross at this point. He's looking to Jesus, the Messiah's exaltation. He's going to be high and lifted up back into heaven. That's exactly what he's talking about here. And several verses in the New Testament confirm that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for you and for I, and that he has all authority over all things. He is sovereign. He is in control. So it's great that he's this, God's servant is going to be glorified. But before that, in verse 14, God's servant would be severely beaten such that his appearance would be so marred, so disfigured, that he'd be even hardly recognizable as a person, as a human being. Now, if you grew up reading the King James, you'll see there in that verse it says his visage. 
His visage regards his facial features. We think of Jesus as he's being scourged, as just being his back being torn open with these, the cat of nine tails and, and the, all the beatings he took, but his face, I'm going to talk to you about his face was beaten, was beaten up, and it was become so disfigured that he could not even be recognized. I want you to picture this in your, in your mind, what he went through for us. Listen to this. Isaiah says in chapter 50, verse 6, he goes, I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard, and I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. As we know in the New Testament, Jesus was slapped as he was mocked and ridiculed. And as they put the crown of thorns on his head, by the way, those spikes are about an inch to an inch and a half long. They went into the depths of his skull, and to have his beard plucked out, and to be spit on, by the way, it's still disgraceful, but back then, that was the epitome of disgrace, is to be spit on by somebody. And he took all of that. And we read where the Gospels record that Pilate was ordered to have Jesus scourged before delivering him to be crucified, and Jesus' body was shredded from the scourging they received at the hands of the Romans. And by the way, oftentimes, scourging led to death. They didn't even make it to the cross. And so in verse 15, as we just read, Isaiah went on to state that God's servant would sprinkle many nations. What this refers to is his sacrificial death and resurrection would cleanse all the sin for all who would believe on his name. And keeping in mind that Isaiah is writing to the Jews, but it also pertains to the Gentiles. Aren't you glad for that? We're included in that as Gentiles. I'm sure most of you here are that. So we get this vivid illustration already and Christ fulfilled everything that Isaiah just talked about. Now let's look at the second stanza, his rejection, 53, 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Here Isaiah states that God's servant is the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord means that he would be empowered with majesty and power and strength, that he would be able to proclaim the gospel of deliverance, the gospel of salvation. That was the expectation and the plan Yet even so, with all that power, he was still rejected, and many did not trust or believe in him. And here's why. What I'm about to share with you is so important if you have a Jewish friend. It's going to help you understand why are they not understanding and believing that Jesus was the Messiah. Here's what Isaiah writes. The problem with the Jews, they expected a Messiah who would deliver the people, the Jews, from the oppression of the Romans. The Roman Empire was so oppressive to Christians and to the Jewish people as a whole. That's what they wanted. They wanted a valiant warrior, someone who would lead them, kind of like Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. They want someone who would lead them and basically be a conqueror and push Rome back so that they might have the autonomy that they felt they deserved. But see, God's servant's purpose was not political or military victory. It was the victory that would be purchased for the deliverance of sin. And there's three reasons why God's servant would be rejected and not believed. And by the way, this is the viewpoint of many Jewish people today. First, 
He came onto the scene in a very quiet and unimpressive way. Jesus didn't come in with pomp and circumstance. He was lowly. He was meek. He was humble. This says here his lineage was unimpressive. He didn't come from this royal line of people like the Herods or whoever's. He was just a somebody. In fact, actually a nobody. From his childhood through his adulthood, there was nothing that distinguished him from a commoner. (laughs) That's hardly a description of someone who had the mighty arm of God in them. Secondly, or or let me expand this for you if you think about it. They were right about Jesus. He was born in poverty in Bethlehem, a small, tiny little village. He grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth was despised by the Jews because of what the Romans did to it. He was unimpressive also. Secondly, in his physical appearance, he was ordinary. Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He had no stately form or majesty, no handsome prince good looks and charisma that drew eyes to him. Rather, he was a rejected person, not valued, of whom nothing was expected. You know, when we picture Jesus, um, he was nothing spectacular in terms of the way he looked. And here it says basically he wasn't in the form of somebody he would consider handsome and so forth. But I want to also say this at the same time. This is my belief. Jesus, being a carpenter, grew up and he had to work hard manual labor. And so a man who works hard manual labor for his whole life, he's going to be very strong. I mean, he's going to be somebody who is not weak. Yes, he is meek, but he was no pushover. And I think sometimes people must understand that we see Jesus on the cross and he looks like a hundred pound scrawny little somebody. He was not like that at all. He was strong in character, he was strong in spirit, and he was strong in bodily as well. So, but it was not his physical appearance that drew anybody to him. Thirdly, Isaiah describes him as a man of sorrows. A man who was suffering and grieving. Now what kind of a valiant leader has those characteristics? Who do people follow today as well as in the past history of mankind? Who do they follow? From my understanding, when I led in leadership class that I had, people follow someone who is confident. I take a bad example here, but I'll take it for Hitler. Why do people follow somebody who was just so far off as Hitler? He was confident, and because of that, he was contagious, and people followed him even to the wrong way. You see, there were several cults. They followed their leader even to the poisoning themselves to death. People are looking for someone who's confident. Jesus comes in humility and meekness. He had a quiet confidence about him, but nothing like this valiant leader they looked for, and so therefore they did not esteem him. In fact, they despised him because he did not do what they were hoping he would do. Jesus didn't conquer the Romans. He did not push them back because that was not what he was called to do. The New Testament confirms, as we see over and over, Jesus was rejected by the people especially those of his own hometown and those of his family, just as Isaiah prophesied. But now in the third stanza, let's look at his, his substitutionary death in verses 4 through um, 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Warren Worsby wrote this I thought was interesting. He said, this is the heart of the passage, and it presents the heart of the gospel message, the innocent servant dying as a sacrifice for sin. 
The message was at the heart of Israel's religious system, the innocent animal dying for the guilty sinner. You know, if you study Old Testament history, they had what was called the Day of Atonement, where once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy Host and would make a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, on behalf of the people to cover their sins until the next year. But you see, Jesus Christ coming as a sacrificial lamb of God, he came perfect and in innocence, but his blood was shed for all of our sins, for all time, past, present, and future. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, and some people have a problem with feeling guilt over it, it's like there's no way that Jesus could possibly forgive me for whatever. Let me tell you, I know that Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. No matter what you've done in the past, no matter what you're currently doing, if you will repent and turn from your sin, God will forgive you. There's no sin that could not be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. The Jews... This was their cultural standard. This was their philosophy. If you were, had an ailment, if you were being despised, if there was something wrong with you, you were being oppressed, it was because of sin in your life. So therefore, they would look at those who were going through hardships in life and say, oh, it must be your sin. Why is your son born blind? Oh, because he must have sinned or his parents sinned. Why was this person lame? Oh, it's because of their sin. They blamed everything on sin, every bit of oppression. But the irony is this. They looked at Jesus he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. Look at all the pain and the suffering, the agony he's going through. Look at all this tragedy that's become him. He must be in sin, and that's why we won't follow him. He is a sinner, and God is punishing him. He couldn't possibly be the Messiah. But the irony is this, ladies and gentlemen, looking at home, listen. He went through this humiliation. He went through everything for you and I. Not because he sinned, because he took all of our sins upon himself. He did something we couldn't do for ourselves. He would bear our griefs, Isaiah said. He would bear our sorrows, and he would take upon himself our sin and suffer immensely. I don't know about you, but I got a lot of paddlings growing up. Anybody witness to that? I was one of those smart mouth kids. I know you can't believe that looking at me now. But the chastisement was frequent, and it was painful. But I deserved it because I did something that necessitated a correction. Jesus did nothing to deserve what he went through. Now listen, I'm going to get a little bit of uh, Hebrew background coming up here. This is fascinating to me in verse 5. Isaiah said he would be pierced, crushed, and wounded. First of all, let me make sure you understand something. This was, again, written 700 years before the time of Christ. Crucifixion was unknown to the Jews. It came from the Persians, but they had no, there was no crucifixion going at the time. They wouldn't even know what the word meant. But yet, look at Isaiah's prophecy, as phenomenal as it is. He said they were pierced. He would be pierced. The word pierced in the Hebrew refers to mortal wounding and death. He knew by what means he would be dying. He knew that there was going to be a spear that would pierce his side and nails that would pierce his wrists and his feet. And the word crush means to break into pieces and to pulverize. Why? He says that because this is for our transgressions, for our iniquities, that means it's our sin, yours and mine. He went through this. Do you get this, people? Are you drawing a picture of Jesus on the cross, bloodied, unrecognizable as a human, taking the punishment that you and I deserved? How many of you have seen the movie The Passion before? It's pretty gory. But actually, in reality, it's not as gory as the reality. I can still recognize the actor Jim Caviezel even though he was made up with all this blood and stuff, I could still recognize him. Jesus was not even that recognizable. He was beyond that point. 
I heard a story about that movie, by the way. I, I'm assuming it's true. But Mel Gibson, who was the producer, when they went to drive the nails through the wrists of Jesus, he took the hammer and he said, I need to do this because these are my sins that were nailed to the cross. I'm not advocating. I don't know where he's spiritual, but I'm saying this. You and I nailed Jesus' hands and feet. It was our sin. It was our punishment that we deserve, that he took upon ourselves. His death would satisfy the wrath of God. It was necessary from before the time began. God knew we would sin and that we would be estranged from him. But he no longer holds our sins against those of us who receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That was what the word, theological term, atonement means. The price has been paid in full. Now here's a verse that gets misinterpreted oftentimes. He, Isaiah goes on to say, and by his stripes we are healed. Some people refer to this saying, oh, God's healing took place, physical healing. Isaiah's not talking about physical healing at all. He's talking about spiritual healing. Yes, God does still heal, amen? There's no question. I have seen miraculous healings right before my eyes, things that cannot be explained by science or by doctors, so he does still heal. But the healing right here that is talking about by his wounds, by Jesus' sacrifice, his atonement, we are healed spiritually from death to life. And God's servant, he just didn't suffer for some. He suffered for everybody. Where do we read that in verse 6? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned everyone to his own way. See, the Bible says that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us are like those sheep that have strayed. Every one of us has turned away from him. I want you to give you an illustration I used to use years ago in doing some evangelism. I think it helps. Some may think, well, I really don't sin that much, and maybe you don't. But let's just say you're really good, and you sin just three times a day. That's pretty good, isn't it? Uh, we might can sin before we even get up out of bed with our attitude, our motivation, something we think. You know, we can sin in thought and word. What if, okay, so three times a day, it's not bad. But over a course of the year, that's about 1,000. And let's say you live 75 years, 75,000 sins on your record, and that's not much. That's good. God's standard is perfection. How do you come against perfection with 75,000 sins? And that's because you're very good by the world's standards. They don't measure up. Second, our 1 Peter 2.24 says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And here he goes, by your wounds you have been healed. So there's that same phrase again, meaning spiritual healing. Let's move on to the fourth stanza, talking about the, the uh, servant's submission. Verses 7 through 9. And he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Just as a lamb that's led to slaughter does not resist, God's servant would not resist. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, willingly went and was unjustly condemned, humiliated to suffer without protest or defense or resistance. So it's in fulfillment that this Lamb of God did not say or do anything. Jesus didn't. He could have. He could have called the angels to spare him, to save him. He could have walked away at any point in time, but he did not. Why? Because he knew this was the, this was the course. This was what he had to go through in order to release you and I 
to salvation through his blood, his death, burial, and resurrection. Remember on the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, not my will but yours be done. You better believe that in his flesh, Jesus did not want to go to the cross. He wanted out. But his spirit would not allow him to do that because he knew it was for the better good. He must go through this pain, this suffering, and this agony. So he remained silent. And he allowed them to crucify him because that was necessary for us to gain eternity in heaven through him. And look at verse 8. He says, to be taken away and cut off out of the land of the living. Isaiah's prophesying that this Messiah, this servant, he would die. He would be cut off from the land of the living. He would no longer be alive. Why? Because you can't rise again unless you're dead first. And Jesus' resurrection was the evidence that he is who he said he was, that he is God in the flesh. It was necessary. Now, it's bad enough that he died on the cross. It was humiliating. My understanding is, from what I've read, is that when the criminals were crucified on the cross, they didn't even have a loincloth around. They were crucified naked. How humiliating to think our Lord was crucified that way. And they were raised up so that everybody could see him. It was a mockery, the greatest form of humiliation and suffering as well. Well, if that's not enough, what they used to do with the criminals back in that time, after they killed them, they'd throw them into the valley, the valley of burning fire, and that's where the trash dump was, the valley of Hinnom. And so that's where Jesus was headed if the Roman soldiers had their way. But Isaiah prophesied that was not going to happen. There would be an exception, and the exception was this. He would be buried in the tomb of a rich man. Now, how in the world would he come up with something, and why? Because if Jesus was thrown into a fiery pot, his body would be burned alive, how was there evidence of his resurrection? Well, we know the Easter story coming up in a couple weeks. We'll hear it again. His prophe- this prophecy was fulfilled when Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, asked Pilate if I could have the body of Jesus and put him in the tomb that I have made for me and my wife. Now, I'm going to go outside of the Bible for just a second. I want to share with you the rest of the story. So Joseph of Arimathea gets Jesus' body. Of course, they anoint it, wrap it, and put it in this this cave that's cut out of the side and they roll a stone away from him and he gets home and he says to his wife, honey, I, I want to let you know what I did this afternoon. I, I put Jesus in our tomb. He says, what are you talking about? That was made for you and I. That was special. We paid a lot of money for that. It was what, what, what are you doing? What's the matter with you? And he says, honey, don't worry about it. He's only going to use it for three days. We'll get it back. <laughs> and let's look lastly at his mission. Verse 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and out of anguish, his soul, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accommodated righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. All we've heard, all the tragedy leads to this, the triumph. His mission was accomplished. The suffering and death of God's servant was clearly God's will from the beginning. In fact, look it up in Revelation 13, verse 8. All this was planned. This was how God ordained that it would happen. He had to die to satisfy the demands of God's holiness. His death appeared to be the end of his existence. However, Isaiah gives us three evidences, and this is fascinating. 
Isn't it enough that Isaiah described the suffering of the Messiah, Jesus, but now he goes on to say that there is evidence in the Old Testament he would be resurrected. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Here they are. Three ways or three evidences Isaiah indicates he would be resurrected. First of all, he shall see his offspring, which means he would see, the Messiah would see all those who became children of his through spiritual rebirth. So if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're a child of the King. You're a child of God. Jesus is alive and a well, and as, part, as being a part of your child, Isaiah said he would see you and he would know you. Secondly, he said he shall prolong his days, which meant that God would have him to live on as the Son of God forever and ever in eternity, just at the same way he began. And in addition to this, if that's not enough, he said he will prosper, meant there was going to be a reward for his obedience for going through all that he went through, and that would be that God would highly exalt him to a place above anyone else forever and ever. Yet before he finishes this passage, he says, why would God, I got to ask this, why would God be pleased to crush and grieve his servant and to make him suffer? If you were a parent, did you ever take pleasure in punishing your child or disciplining your child? Hopefully not. The pleasure is not in, yes, I discipline my children. One of them more than the other two. <laughs> I won't mention names. You can figure it out sometime. <laughs> but the discipline was not pleasurable at that time, but it was necessary to get the outcome of correction and righteous and obedience on the other side. So some people look at this passage and say that God, how could God take pleasure in the crucifixion and the beating of his own son because it was necessary to get to the victory on the other side. Oftentimes there's pain before there is pleasure, isn't there? Just think about when you go to the doctors, how many times did you get a very impleasurable, if that's even a word, some type of, of treatment, and you say, man, that was, that was horrible. Why'd you go through it? Because on the other side, the reward of the healing. So he would prosper. He would be, he'd be crushed. He would grieve his servants. Why? So that you and I could live in eternity with him. Aren't you thankful for that? Are you getting the picture? Aren't you grateful that Jesus didn't say at some point in time, I've had enough, I'm leaving, I'm walking away? Aren't you glad that he suffered immensely and he followed God's plan to the T for you and for me? If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you know that if tonight you go to bed and something happens, will you die in your sleep? Do you realize you're going to wake up and see Jesus? Because of what happened right here. But think of what he went through, and I'm getting to a point to close this up in just a minute. God, listen, God desperately, desperately wants every person to respond to his offer of salvation through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 5a, God demonstrated his love for us in that we are yet sinners. Christ died for me and for you. I have witnessed to several people before, and I shared with them the gospel, and they did not respond. I said, why not now? Well, I want to clean a few things up in my life. I want to quit smoking. I want to quit drinking. I want to quit this. I want to stop this. I said, let God change you. He wants to take you just as you are. Because you can never, listen, you can never clean yourself enough up for him, can you? And when God saved me in 1982, June, I was nothing. I was a nobody, going nowhere. And he picked me up and he saved me. I was not worthy, nor are you, but he does it out of his grace. For that we are eternally grateful and thankful. Second Peter 3, 9. 
God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to faith and repentance in Christ. Do you recognize that? Two weeks ago, we had a special speaker here, and he talked about how we need to reach this next generation for Christ. If you're saved and you're sitting here this morning and you're out there and watching from home, listen, we have a commission to reach people, the lost people, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he left us here for. We have a story to tell, and I've shared you with that story that Jesus was suffered and he bled and he died and he was resurrected so that we might have life. The problem is I don't think we get it. I don't think we realize because we take our Christianity so flippantly, we live like we want to live, we do what we want to do, as if Jesus never died for us. I'll tell you this, folks, the Christian church is apathetic and we're complacent. Why? Because we're saved, we know we're going to heaven. What, what do I need to do? I want to, just, I want to end with a little bit of a challenge here. I think it's time that we step out and do something based off what we heard today, remembering, wow, considering what he did for me, there's something more I've got to do with him. And by the way, the victory you know has already been won, amen? When he says here that, that God will divide him a portion with the many and divide the spoil with the strong, what is he talking about there? That you and I were snatched out of the grasp of Satan, and saved by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We were the Satan's territory. We were the devils. And this territory is like a victor in a military battle. You take the spoils and now they're yours. We are the spoils because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Because he willingly submitted to God's plan, just as Isaiah predicted, he was and is and always will be exalted forevermore. Philippians 2, 9 and 10 says, God therefore has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Let me just summarize this as we close. One commentator said this, this amazing passage that we just studied confirms the death of Christ satisfied God's righteous demands for the judgment against sin, therefore opening the way for everyone to come to faith in God for salvation from sin. So the question is this. After being reminded of what incredible suffering and humiliation Jesus went through for you and for me, what's your response? If you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, are you living for him daily? I mean, are you giving him, and am I giving him our very best, considering what he did for us, or are we giving him what's left over, our leftover time, our leftover talents, our leftover treasure? Are we giving him our best because that's what he did for you and for me? How can we not give him anything less? Some of you this morning may be very far away from him. You're distanced from him. You're really not living for him. You're just going through the motions. Maybe today you need to come down to this altar and repent and ask God to forgive you. And just, and just rededicate your life. Say, God, I want to get back on fire for you. I want to be close to you. Let me ask you another question. Let me put it this way. Have you ever been closer to Jesus Christ than you are today? If there was a time that you were closer to Jesus Christ than you are today, why not get it right today? When I say, God, I want to come back to you on your terms. I want to live for you. I want to serve you. I want to glorify you. I want to speak on your behalf. God, I want your blessing through obedience to you. We do that this morning? We this morning pray from your pew or come up here and just say, God, I've been playing around. I've been playing church. I've been playing the part of a Christian. But you know what? I've not been on fire for you, and I've not sacrificed anything for you. Now that I understand how much you sacrificed for me, today I draw a line of saying it's a new beginning for me. Or perhaps you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior before. Maybe today you recognize, you know what? I don't want to spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. I want to know him. And I realized today after what I heard, I don't have to clean up anything. I just need to come to him just as I am. 
That's how it works. God wants you to come. Would you stand? We're going to pray in just a moment. Just a minute. A few calls for those of you who are saved. What are you going to do with what you heard today? You're going to continue to live on the same, or are you going to step out and really live for Him, knowing that He gave His best for you? And if you've never trusted His Christ as your Lord and Savior, listen. For those who are looking on, listening online, if you want to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you just acknowledge? Let us know that. There's a button you can click right there, folks online. Just let us know you want to know Christ as your Savior. We'll be glad to pray for you, to talk with you. You can call us here. We're here for you. We want you to know Christ personally. And you can repent from home if you just feel like you're far away from the Lord. God will receive you wherever you're at. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what the servant suffered, what he went through. Boy, he was massacred. He was ridiculed. He was humiliated in such a barbaric way. All the time, I believe he was thinking of us and just pleading, God, save them. So God, I thank you that in June of 1982, you reached down and saved me, unworthy as I am. And God, I pray for every saved person here this morning who knows you, that today we will step new and rededicate our lives to live for you in ways like we haven't done in a long time, perhaps, or maybe even never. And God, we pray for anyone this morning under the sound of my voice, both at home and here. God, I pray that if there's someone who's never received you as Lord and Savior, today all they have to do is simply confess that they're a sinner, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. He rose on the third day and makes intercession for us in heaven and just ask him to come into our hearts and lives. God, this message was from you, for you, to bring glory to your name. So God, do business with your people. Let your spirit speak to us and let us be receptive and responsive in Christ's name. Amen.